Customs to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Visiting Church. And here is again, as always, with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So we're going to talk through Isaiah, Ezra, and some more of John today. And we'll pick up uh, still in the happy part of Isaiah, at least, uh, sort of these speaking of God's redemption and restoration of his people uh, in such a way that also has a very um, messianic flair throughout this text. And so um, we pick up right from then that, that mm-hmm. he's going to restore them and bring them back. This is sort of good news for them constantly to hear of, of God's desire to restore, not just bringing them back to Jerusalem at this point in their storyline, but also um, a, a sort of future full restoration that's coming. Yeah. And as we think about that with, with a Messiah, with God who became man, we can come back to that passage and just look at the, all of the the physical body imagery we see here, we're talking about feet bringing good news and God bearing his holy arm. And it's kind of fun to make that connection with what we read in Isaiah 52 with our human savior. Yeah. And we, we hear once again about this suffering servant and all the ways that um, he, he's going to suffer ultimately to bring about healing. And um, there, Jews and Christians have certainly debated this. And, and yes, there's certainly parallels in the text, like as, as a nation, that they were rejected by other nations. They were acquainted uh, 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 with suffering and because of their sins that they had to suffer. But um, there's, there's also so much language in this text that moves beyond that. And there's a little too much personification of of somebody who's going to come that's a different kind of servant than just Israel. And so, um, and, and as you read John this week, and as you're reading about the crucifixion of Jesus, at the same time as you're reading Isaiah talk about the suffering of the servant for the sake of healing, that by the wounds of this um, this the servant, the healing would come. I hope, I hope it just made that much more connection for you as you read. Yeah, it's easy to forget that it was suffering that brought life to us. And Christ is our ultimate picture, but as followers of Christ, we also embrace that life of suffering um, and understand that out of suffering, out of wounds, we find healing. Yeah, and, and we hear about a, a, a covenant, an eternal covenant of peace that um, God sort of presented as this faithful husband, steadfast, never leaving. Um, that that promise is sure, just like uh, just like at the time of Noah. That that there's this picture of of one who um, will comfort Israel, like like this wife who has been momentarily abandoned, but ultimately is reunited with her husband. And so, um, this idea of God's protection in some ways uh, here in the text. Yeah, this covenant of peace you'll see connected to in John as we read forward in John. But I think we see a big emphasis on God's compassion. Israel's disobedience led to consequences, of course, but God always responded to them with compassion, restoring them and really all nations to himself. So this is just another reminder to us that God does not fail his people. And this covenant of peace that we are offered in him will be forever. And then we move into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, it gets split up uh, in uh, New Testament writings, uh, likely because of uh, scrolls just being the lengths that they were. Uh, and so Ezra and Nehemiah get broken into two books, and um, but ultimately were originally written as a singular work of literature uh, and really focus on three main characters in some ways of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And it becomes sort of this three-part cycle that exists in this book of, of um, this leader within Israel wanting um, the permission of a Persian king to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, somehow there's opportunity 
opposition when they get there. And then with each sort of story, each sort of section, there's sort of this weird kind of anticlimactic ending to the section. And, um, and the book even wraps up with a bit of an undoing of even some of the stuff that they go to do. Uh, we kind of are left with a bit of a dud by the end of this book, which because it's broken up into three different weeks of reading, it's just important to, to know sort of the, 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 the difficulty of probably interpreting this book altogether because there's good moments. There's, there's something wrong with wanting to be rebuild the temple and wanting to bring back the sacrificial system. But there's also sort of, we're kind of left with just like this man kind of feeling from the book of, mm-hmm. of, and we've watched Israel have these uh, tremendous dedications before. Um, and and yet at the same time we we've already read Jeremiah and Isaiah and most of Isaiah at least and and we do know that there's this promise of new hearts and a, a way that that ultimately people will be made new and changed and, and we're not quite there yet and so I think Ezra and Nehemiah provide these sort of like interesting perspective on um, revival and restoration but also like a reminder that we're not quite where we need to be but um, anyways we also understand um, kind of. Persian history here too. Uh, the Babylonians were definitely more of an assimilation group. They would bring people into their country. They would try to intermarry them and ultimately wipe out the culture. Um, the Persians were much more lenient on that front. And we're going to see that pretty quickly uh, in the text. They didn't mind people worshiping their own gods or maintaining culture as long as they paid tribute to Persia. Um, and uh, if they pay their dues and don't rebel, everything's good. And so uh, Persia's content with that sort of allegiance. And we will see that in the Persian leaders. Yeah, I think there's there's themes here we see around the temple or the mosaic law and as you read it this really is like chris mentioned pointing us toward a need for a savior outside of ourselves or a need of um being renewed from within which we read about in ezekiel and things and we also read about it in the new testament so as you read about zerubbabel and the temple Think about what that means for us as New Testament believers, or as you read about the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law, think about how Christ fulfilled that for us. So all of this is meant to point us to the need for a Messiah, and then we can think about what it looks like for us to live on this side of salvation. And we hear from Cyrus, uh, this uh, ruler out of Persia, uh, who's led by God, which is great. This is sort of this moment of God leading Gentiles as opposed to the leaders of God's people mm-hmm. in this moment. Um, and decrees that Israel should return to land. They should take all these gold and resources, which we will see again multiple times. Um, and, and and they ultimately return all the temple stuff with uh, that the Babylonians had plundered. and. Once again, all this is prophesied in books like Jeremiah and Isaiah uh, about this very thing coming to pass. Yeah. So they get to go rebuild the Jerusalem temple because they were instructed to do it by a pagan king. Yep. Uh, and so um, they're coming home, but it's important to remember, like, there are generations removed, the city has been destroyed, and they're kind of returning to almost nothing, yet it's still home. So it's sort of like this bittersweet return, not this always, like, parade triumph it's like um i mean even thinking of um countries that were destroyed in the last 10 years in 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 the world and um refugees having to kind of return home it's a joy but it's also they're coming back to to ruins of what they remember um and and they're coming back and keeping track of their family groups uh, which is once again is important especially around a promise of a messiah as well as priests and, and sort of a priestly system and so um they, they verify all these backgrounds and genealogies which once again becomes part of the cycle of the three different uh, characters in the story 
it can be boring for us to read chronicles and genealogies and names and numbers and stuff like that. But remember that what we're doing here too is we are counting and remarking on the faithfulness of God to his people. There are 42,000 people returning to Jerusalem after over 70 years in exile. And what a picture of God's faithfulness to preserving a remnant. And the return is hopeful. One of the first things they decide to do is reinstill worship and offerings. They, they yeah. want to build the altar. This is a good thing. Um, and and this altar is the presence uh, connected to the presence of God with them. Like there's a desire to get back to the land and have Yahweh dwell with them again. And they celebrate the Feast of Booze, which is also connected to even their experience where um, the Feast of Booze is re- to, to remember is um, a, a, a holiday that they're given to, to mark their time in the wilderness that God was with them even in their travels. And so it mm-hmm. seems like a pretty fitting holiday. Um, and, and this time around also the, they insist that they do all the work. Um, if we remember back to the building of Solomon's temple, uh, he entered a treaty with the King of Tyre and Sidon for the first temple. And, and there's all sorts of, um, um, theological work or positions in history that, that connect that act to ultimately um, Jezebel and some of the, the, the negative things that happen amongst the kings of Israel. And so this time around, that that's not going to happen. And the work is going to be done by God's people. It's, the, it's a national project for them, uh, which I think is it's the right thing in this moment. Mm-hmm. So the very first thing they do when they get back there is to rebuild the altar and offer burnt offerings. And then they start work on rebuilding the temple. Yep. And and it's a celebration when they when they rebuild the temple and kind of have this dedication. It's a celebration of uh, or a mix of celebration and weeping. Um, and there's an interpretive conversation of why are they weeping? Are they weeping because of um, just remembering the last seven year seventy years? Are they weeping because this temple's not quite as glorious as Solomon's temple? Or are they possibly weeping because like if we watch the sort of the the rebuilding dedication ceremonies of the tabernacle and the temple, it is very um, supernatural and there's fire falling and there's all these things happening and here it just doesn't happen. And so uh, one of the ways some people interpret that is that um, that doesn't happen here, neither here nor in chapter six when Ezra has it sort of a, a temple dedication as well, that there's sort of a lacking of sort of a supernatural moment in, in sort of this, this rebuilding of the temple. Yeah. I like that picture, the perspective of them worshiping through singing and weeping. And, and while we don't know what the weeping is exactly, you know, you have this verse for he is God for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And I just, you know, these people probably wondered if that was really true after over 70 years in exile and prophecies of judgment, they probably expected that God would have abandoned them and that the Jewish lineage would be wiped out. But God didn't abandon his people. He remains always faithful. So the specific language here around God's goodness and his love enduring forever is especially powerful. Yep. And we get another part of the cycle, which is uh, there's adversaries uh, to the whole project. Um, there's a group that seems to want to help. And I w- if you could see me, it would be air quote version of help. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not quite sure uh, exactly what their motives are. Um, and we're not even quite sure exactly who this group is. Are they non-Israelites? Are the Israelites left behind? Are they foreign? Like, uh, which group? Are they like the Samaritans? Are they kind of culturally mixed? What, what are they? But um, Zerubbabel is certainly suspicious of all this. And, and I think he does... I would argue at this moment the right thing uh, to say, look, this is this is our national project as it should be. Um, the Israelites are the ones who are going to rebuild this this temple. And so um, and these enemies put up a stink with the Persians and they're not happy about um, Jerusalem being reestablished to what it was. Yeah. Yeah. They were pretty mad about it. And so they made it difficult. Yeah, they wrote a letter, uh, as you do. They sent in a complaint uh, to, to the king. And um, 
And by the way, just for, for you to know, kind of um, nerdy background stuff, uh, the text actually switches to Aramaic at this point, hmm. um, and it's not not totally sure uh, exactly why. Daniel made more sense than Ezra switching here, but uh, they basically make up lies, um, saying that if he lets the Israelites rebuild the temple, they're eventually going to stop paying tribute. Um, Israel's been rebellious in the past, so their own past sins are still hurting them. Um, but some of those lies, I think, play into um, eventually what Artaxerxes will say in the future. Yeah. And the king orders the work to stop for 18 years. And so um, it's a good it's a good time for us to actually break in this book. Uh, so, um, yeah. And I think while we aren't, you know, rebuilding a temple, we will find that as believers, we're going to face opposition to our obedience. And that is the enemy working against us. But we must continue to faithfully obey and walk forward with God's commands to us, even in the midst of adversity. So let's jump to John. Um, we've covered the crucifixion three times now, and as stated uh, before, uh, there's definitely some parallels between the Roman coronation process and some of the stuff that's happening in, in the storyline, as if all four gospel writers are talking about the coronation of Jesus through a cross as opposed to the coronation of Caesar, that Jesus is the true king. Um, and, and the very thing... Um, he interacted with Pilate about that his kingdom doesn't share the same value systems as the world. I mean, the crucifixion itself, the suffering and death in one of the most egregious ways that history has ever had a for suffering and death was actually the coronation of a King. And so, um, the act of death is sort of a atoning for sin, but also this upside down way of death. Uh, Jesus could have died in all sorts of different ways, but the, the sort of shame and lowering of status, is that much more representative of the upside down nature of, of Jesus's kingdom. Uh, and the whole scene heavily focuses on the suffering of Jesus um, in, in this text. And so um, it becomes such an emphasis and the religious leaders are still doing their political schemes with Pilate. Um, and uh, question their own, Pilate's own allegiance to Rome uh, and Jesus ultimately is sentenced in the process. Yeah. So Pilate is resisting this, but the Jews are insisting that Jesus be crucified. And so it seems like, chaos and confusion on the outside with Pilate not wanting to punish Jesus and the Jews insisting on it is a reminder that even God has his hand and authority in all of this too. Jesus reminds Pilate that all authority he has is from God. And there's a crucifixion, and uh, Jesus is taken to Golgotha and crucified. He's further mocked. Pilate even puts a sign, King of the Jews, uh, to which um, these Jewish leaders who have gotten him crucified <laughs> take great offense at, because um, they insist that he's certainly not their king. Um, and and this, there's fulfillment all over the place in here, as we read in Isaiah, but there's just pieces all over the place, like uh, casting out a lot, things like that, that are just all over the crucifixion. Um, and and uh, to connect the dots of like John and Mary and the connections here, um, it is likely, it's sort of church tradition teaches that John and actually takes care of Mary in Ephesus in sort of the end of her life. And so uh, we see the connection to, to John and Mary at the crucifixion scene in this text, which uh, if John's writing, uh, I think it's really important. Yeah, what an amazing picture of Jesus's heart of compassion that in his worst moment ever, uh, he is still displaying compassion for those closest to him by giving charge of Mary to John. What yeah. an incredible sacrificial love for others. Yeah. Uh, and then Jesus, um, once again, uh, the story of his death, uh, and uh, there's almost nothing I would add to it um, and, and don't want to say too much, but um, Jesus once again proclaims it is finished. He's accomplished what he came to do, uh, which is the payment for sin and suffering and death. And I think we come back in this section to this theme of living water as well, which comes up a lot in the book of John. We see Jesus experiencing this thirst in order that we would never thirst again. 
So you can think of John four in that also. Yep. Uh, Jesus uh, is pierced, which once again ties into Isaiah as we read this week. Um, and not only that, but it's spoken about his bones not being broken, stuff like that, which Exodus 12 speaks of that the Passover lamb's bones were not broken. So um, this is definitely John being explicit to connect the dots um, between what Jesus did and the Passover lamb. Yeah. Well, and just so much of Old Testament scripture being fulfilled. And remember, John here is speaking to kind of second generation believers who weren't necessarily eyewitnesses to all of this. And so he's making some of the connections that maybe more naturally came to the new believers with the eyewitnesses in the previous generation. And then Joseph, uh, who we've never been introduced to before, but John seems to think maybe we know him, and Nicodemus, uh, who we have certainly been introduced to before, um, lay Jesus in a tomb, um, another person's tomb, which is not actually that unusual. Uh, tombs were reused in those days. It was sort of a place for your body to decompose. Then they took your bones, put it into an ossuary, which is like a smaller box, um, and then put them in a family of boxes uh, with your relatives. And so, um, but uh, we once again see see Joseph and, and Nicodemus particularly uh, show up again in the story. Yeah, it's it's cool to come back to and think about Nicodemus's storyline. You know, we first see him in John 3 when he comes to Jesus at the cover of night to ask some questions and try to figure things out, but doing it in secret. And then we see him being one of the people who is taking Jesus's um, body to entomb it. Yep. And then uh, Jesus um, has, I mean, the resurrection story happens. Mary finds the tomb and it's empty. The rocks rolled away and she immediately gets some of the other disciples. Uh, once again, that's probably a reason why we think John wrote this book is just stuff like this. Like both the disciples are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's like John included a note that he uh, is faster than Peter. Uh, and then uh, the two disciples immediately leave um, and leave Mary behind. Um, and it's hard to get a sense what exactly Mary believes has happened to Jesus's body, but at least the disciples immediately think that Jesus has resurrected. I just love here that they hadn't given up. Everything they had was still riding on Jesus. They didn't uh, throw in the towel yet. And so we see that hope and faith come out in this moment with those believers, with those disciples. Yeah. And there's definitely um, some new creation overtones to this text here. Um, if you, if you remember at the beginning of John, <clears throat> John, says this was the first of the signs that Jesus performed and then this is the second of the signs that Jesus performed as if to trigger you to know hey we should keep track of the signs that Jesus performing because John doesn't give us numbers from that point on but by the seventh one that really appears in the text we get the raising of Lazarus and so <clears throat> knowing seven is sort of like the completeness of time and and not only that but but on sort of the the Sabbath day of that time we, we see the resurrection of Lazarus we should expect the start of a new time frame a new in some ways a new creation and and we see the resurrection of Jesus at the start of that and not only that but the text even says on the first day of the week this happens and not only that but now we are in a garden and there's an interaction between God and this woman and instead of Satan tempting this woman and the conversation being, uh, where are you, Adam and Eve? It's, it's Jesus interacting with this woman and, and, and who is looking for Jesus and Jesus ultimately revealing himself to us. So we get this picture of why the new covenant is so much different than the old covenant. 
Yeah, there's so much throwback to even Genesis one and two with with the gardener, like Chris mentioned, and we could even think about Adam. Yeah. First, the first Adam is the gardener, and Definitely. then there's this personal connection of him saying Mary's name. He seeks Mary, and she knows who he is after that personal interaction. And then Jesus emphasizes that they are siblings and co-heirs with Christ when he says, "My Father and your Father, my God and your God." It's so cool to see that personal connection invitation there. And then also, let's just note that the first witness to the resurrection is a woman who was delivered from a whole bunch of demons. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's John's, John's doing an amazing job connecting some of the dots for us and how he writes his gospel um, to, to really see these amazing things. And then Psalm 45. Yeah, we see a lot here with David's throne, which connects us to Christ's throne, which is forever and ever. So we see him ruling in uprightness and righteousness. Yeah, this this poem almost reads like a marriage ceremony kind of declaration with this king who's going to rule together or forever. And uh, Hebrews 1 certainly draws from the psalm to kind of point to Jesus as our eternal king. Uh, so Old Testament, New Testament next week? Yeah, so in the Old Testament, spend some time considering the imagery of the people celebrating the Passover. How do you think they felt about celebrating this in the context of having just spent decades in exile? And what is similar or different uh, to them, the Passover that they celebrated when they were had just come out of Egypt or in Egypt? Um, and in the New Testament, it's going to help you to know the style in which First John is written and some context behind why John wrote the book of First John. So do a little bit of research on that. Maybe watch the Bible Project video. And if you have time, do a little bit of research on like Gnostic beliefs. That's G-N-O-S-T-I-C beliefs. If you have time as well, it will really help you to better understand First John. Yeah, as we, we move from Zerubbabel to, to Ezra, um, it, it's interesting to try to parse out like why Ezra uh, makes sort of the decree he ultimately will make in the text you'll read next week. Um, and and it might be important to trace, all right, where where is God in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like, when is God speaking? Who is God speaking to? Um, it, it, it's it's a peculiar um, thing to kind of watch for as you're reading through that book. And then New Testament, um, John has a pretty unique sort of epilogue uh, versus the other Gospels, um, almost like an extra chapter added on, which some people do think it's an extra chapter. But why do you think he included what he included um, in that extra chapter then in chapter 21? So, uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.